Hey, and welcome to the Humanity Church Podcast. So excited that you're here. We hope that you enjoy this week's talk and it really connects to your life in a meaningful way. If you're live in the Pomona area, we would love to have you at one of our gatherings at 10 a.m. or at one of our humanity groups that meet all throughout the week all over the city. If you want more information about our community, you can go to www.humanitychurch.com or download our app on your phone on Apple or Android. If you like what you're hearing here and want to continue to support the ongoing work at Humanity, you can text the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977 and give back financially in just about 10 seconds. Hey, and here's this week's talk that was given live at our Sunday gathering at Humanity Church. Spirit of God, I, I thank you that you're here with us. And we, we pause to first recognize that above everything else. And may we never take that for granted, just the fact that we get to swim in your waters and breathe your air and be among you, God. How, how much of a gift is that? And may today you remind us of just the shocking, miraculous, um, overwhelming nature of that, God, and what that means for us as humans, interacting with one another and interacting with you, God. And the power that comes from that, not only uh, internally for us, but through us, God, today. Remind us of who we are and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, this week uh, started what's known in some faith circles as Lent. And I know that that's not something that we oftentimes talk about here. In fact, it was not part of my faith tradition growing up. In fact, the first time uh, that I remember finding out about this thing called Lent, I, I distinctly remember I was a young kid and I was at a Kmart on a Wednesday evening with my mom and walking around and seeing everyone with dirt on their foreheads. And, you know, me being the, like, the loud kid in the store, like, Mom, why does everyone have dirt on their foreheads? And she goes, shh, it's Ash Wednesday, right? And I'm like, what's Ash Wednesday? That's weird, you know? And she had to explain to me that this whole thing. And, of course, Lent tends to be more of either like a Catholic tradition or uh, more of a liturgical tradition with those who follow more of like a, a scheduled church calendar. And if you know us at Humanity Church, we are, we are not scheduled. We, are, we do not follow kind of rules and rituals and things like that. In fact, we are a very, uh, when, when people like saying, I, I'm not about structured religion, we're like, great, because we are very unstructured here. Uh, and so that's kind of who we are. We, that's never been a part of that. And if you know me, I'm the guy who, who runs from that. Anything that smells like, hey, this is an obligation that we have to do, I'm, let's, let's do the opposite of that. So that's not really my jam in the, in the middle of that. But I think there are moments where it is beautiful to take a look at rhythms that we find in our lives and things that are made to be reminders for us of who we are and, and who God is and how we are to live our lives and, and what all of that looks like. They remind us of, of both Jesus and his sacrifice for us and who we are in light of that. And so I actually thought it might be interesting today to pause since we're not in a series. We're going to be starting a series in March that I'm very, very excited about. But to pause today and actually take a look at what is this thing called Lent because I, I notice it's all over Facebook about people were giving away and Ash Wednesday and things like that. So I, I actually thought today it might be interesting to dive into this. And because I, I actually think it is quite relevant to where we are today. In fact, when I was thinking through it, to do this talk or not, I was kind of like, what's, what's so relevant about Lent to our lives and everything that's going on in our lives? Is it, is it worth wasting a Sunday on Lent? 
And I realize that it's actually beautiful in terms of what it has to say to us today and how we are to actually live our lives. Because in my struggling through, what's the big deal about Lent? I realized that it speaks to two countercultural invitations that Jesus invites us into. And I want to engage those two very countercultural conversations because I think they're actually very critical to where we're at as a people, as a nation, as a culture today. And I want to talk about how that moves us into a healthier space as human beings. Now, Lent began, it's a season that began on Wednesday with a thing called Ash Wednesday, of course, where people oftentimes will go to their priest or they'll go to their pastor and they'll have ashes put on their forehead. And it's day to remember and repent and all kinds of other things. And it's a 40-day season that leads us to Easter. So in case you're wondering, we are like 37 days away from Easter if that doesn't scare you a little bit, all right? <laughs> so, so that's where we find ourselves in, in, in all of this. But here's the thing. Human beings in the scriptures are known as like the pinnacle of creation. That, that when God created everything, he, he actually says that he, he created us as a, as a very high-ranking member of creation. I mean, if, if there was like a hierarchy of creation, there's like worms, right? And maybe rabbits and dogs and human beings, right? And so, so of all the things that God created, we, we are the crowning jewel of his creation. And when you look at humanity, we, we do incredible things on top of that. We're able to build incredible civilizations. We develop unbelievable technology. We're able to create these powerful moments between one another. We develop families and structures and innovation and art and exploration. And there, there's so much about humanity that is so good and beautiful and reflects so much of who God is and represents who God is. But then there's also this other part of human being that is the exact opposite of who God is, that doesn't exactly reflect the beauty of God. So, so just like you can take a look at the contribution that humanity has made to the world around us, whether it's art or civilization or development or technology, you can equally look and say, wow, humanity has introduced genocide to the human story. It's introduced war and famine, and, and it's introduced poverty and slavery and, and all kinds of darkness and evil that has entered the world usually is due to human beings interacting with one another as well. And so we, we, we look at the world around us and we look even internally and we can see this duality that exists inside and all around humanity, this, this extreme capacity to create beauty and hope and love and intimacy and this extreme capacity to create darkness and destruction and death and hopelessness everywhere we go. And here's the thing is we can look out at the world and go, yeah, I can see that. I can see the reality that, that humanity as a whole has, has created beauty and darkness. But what we don't actually like is when we recognize that that duality lives inside of us. See, it's one thing to have it out there. Like I can see how, how humanity has created war and how it's created beautiful family, but we don't like that that duality is warring within us all the time, attempting to inform us of who we are. And we look at the scriptures, even how the scriptures talk about us. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And then Ephesians tells us that, that we are citizens with saints and members of God's home. It's like, which are we, right? <laughs> we don't like the idea. It's like, could you just please tell me, am I a complete failure or am I the crowning jewel of God's creation? Which one? Just because I'm fine with either, but I just need to know where I fall into this category. And we struggle with the concept that we are simultaneously both sinners and saints. 
We struggle with this reality that we are, are, have both darkness and light within us at all times and that they can take up the same space known as us in any given moment. And I think we struggle with that as human beings because we like things clear cut, don't we? We like to be all good or we like to be all bad, but we don't like this in-between space where there's brackish waters, where, where things move simultaneously with one another. And for years and years and years, the church has assumed that, that by correcting this, they could help people connect to Jesus by making sure they were clear about how dark and evil they were. And that, that's really been a narrative that has driven the church for years and years and years. That, they, that there's just been this emphasis on things like sin and hell and damnation and brokenness, all of which um, doesn't necessarily need to be convincing to people. I find that if you talk to people that nine times out of 10, if you say, hey, do you recognize that there's some type of flaw inside of you? They're like, absolutely, yes. That's, that's not, you don't have to convince me of that in any way, shape, or form. I got it. I got it that there's something off internally with me. But for years and years and years, the church has felt like, hey, this is the, this is the hammer that I need to hammer to, to get people to connect to Jesus. Now, look, I don't deny that any of those things actually exist with us, but I don't know if they're actually the best invitation to connect to Jesus, Right? We just assume that by hammering on the darkness, we might be able to shame people or scare people into connecting with God. And there's very little emphasis on what it actually means to be divinely human as well on the other side of the coin. But it's interesting that in response to that, the pendulum has almost swung the other way now in our culture. That there's very little talk of that, and the emphasis is all now on around self-love and acceptance and being enough and recognizing that we are inherently good and denying that there's any type of flaw in the human soul, that there couldn't be darkness that lives inside of us because God has, of course, declared us to be good. And here's the thing. Both of these, an attempt to emphasize how evil we are or an attempt to scrub any darkness outside of us and to declare us, capital G, good, is both a way to deal with the tension that lives inside of us, uh, that these realities exist all at the same time within us, and that with that comes this huge weight of shame. That, that, that if I'm designed to be glorious, that if I'm designed to be a saint as a citizen in the, in the, in the kingdom of God, but I also recognize that there's brokenness, there, there's this overwhelming shame that at times washes over us and informs us and keeps us from living powerfully the life that we were designed to live. So I actually want to talk about this first very countercultural idea that Lent invites us into, specifically Ash Wednesday on Wednesday in this season of fasting, and it's this, that it's actually possible to fully recognize our own darkness and our own brokenness outside of the context of shame. Now, I know that's a crazy idea in our culture, that we could actually say, hey, look, there's parts of me that are flawed. There's parts of me that are broken. There are parts of me that are, are just at, at their foundation cracked, and that's okay. <laughs> I don't actually have to live in a space of shame or self-loathing or anger around that. It's interesting because Jesus had one message that he hammered over and over and over again, and it was about this kingdom of God that was coming. If you've been around humanity here, you know that there's such this emphasis on this kingdom of God, of power and love and light that he was bringing to earth through him coming to the planet. 
But he had this other message that was connected with it that we oftentimes don't like to take a look at it. But in Matthew 4, 17, this is what he said. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's interesting that these two words go hand in hand. Oftentimes when Jesus is talking about the future that he's longing to create, where he's longing to to take us, is that he simultaneously talks about this kingdom of heaven that is coming and this call to repentance. Now, I I bristle with the word repentance because it's such a loaded word, right? I mean, when I think of repentance, I think of the guy on the street corner with a bullhorn and a sign, right? That's like, repent for the kingdom of God. And it's, it's not, it doesn't like usher in warm feelings, right? When we talk about that. It's not like, hey, you know what? We should go, you know what we should have? We should have a repentance session, right? Now, no church is like, hey, you know what? We're having a repentance night. It's always like, we're having a worship night or we're having a lock-in or something. No one's ever like, hey, let's have a repentance night because that's not feel good. <laughs> and... Ironically, this is what Jesus kept saying to us. Hey, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And I think because the church has made this such a dirty word, we've lost the power of it. It literally just means to turn direction from where you're headed back to the hope and light and beauty that you were actually made for. To to, to get off the path that's moving you towards destruction and hopelessness and darkness and move back to the space that you were actually designed for. See, Jesus was preaching that his kingdom was coming, this kingdom of light and of love and of power and forgiveness and restoration and wholeness. And what he's basically saying to us when he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near, he's saying, look, there is this powerful, glorious kingdom that your soul was actually made for. And so, Hey, if you're willing to get off the path, because the current path that you're on is going to be incompatible with this brand new kingdom that I'm bringing you. Your your own arrogance and your own self-loathing and your own darkness and your own brokenness, it's like focusing on that is not going to work. So turn and move towards this kingdom of light and goodness and hope. It's essentially an invitation to become the human that you were designed to be to repent from this small game that you're playing and step into the glorious nature that you were designed for in this movement known as the kingdom of God. And Ash Wednesday is this moment where we pause and we remember, oh yeah, I need to repent. I need to step back into the glorious movement of the kingdom of God that I was made for, that I was created for, that my soul longs for in the middle of this. When I I think about what humanity as a church contribution to the world is, I want us to reframe what that word repentance means. I, I want it to be an invitation, not a condemnation. I want it to be an invitation into this kingdom driven life that is filled with possibility and filled with hope and filled with beauty. Not, not, not an accusation against who you are and where you're at, but Ash Wednesday is a reminder. It starts with a reminder that we are to turn from the direction that we are headed and to continue moving towards the points that we're headed towards. That's why we put ashes on our heads on Wednesday, because it's a, it's a remembrance that there is parts of our lives in the directions that we've had. There are points in our lives that we've stepped into that have left us in ashes when we were designed for beauty. There are places in our lives that have left us burned and scarred where we were actually designed for wholeness and health and beauty. And that's what Ash Wednesday calls us into. See, if you are willing to authentically investigate your life as God's spirit leads you to examine the places where you need repentance, where you need to actually return back to the glorious life that you were called to, if, you're, if you are unwilling to do that, 
If you're like, hey, that's just not my jam, I'd rather feel good, or I don't even want to take a look at that. If you are unwilling to do that, to partner with the Spirit of God and revealing those areas that need to shift, you will actually never know what's needed to step into the abundant life. You'll find yourself constantly wondering, like, hey, why is my life falling apart? I don't know. I don't want to look at this. I have no idea why my life might be falling apart. Pay no attention to the darkness behind the curtain over here, right? But I don't know why my marriage is falling apart. I don't know why my life feels like hell. I don't know why I'm being overrun by anxiety. But we're not going to look in this door over here. Just don't pay no attention to it. Because we don't want to repent, (laughs) to turn into the glorious life that we're called for. And so when you find yourself there, when you're unwilling to just say, hey, search me, know me, I want to know, you will always find yourself in a space of anxiety. You will always find yourself in a space of hopelessness because you actually need to know you are here on the map before you ever get to the destination that God has called you to. There's some power in being willing to do that. You will constantly be guessing at what's needed. Like, I think I need to go to another seminar, or I think I need to spend more money on this product, or I think I need to do this thing. Maybe this will help. And that's where we find ourselves. And I, and I noticed for me that, that myself and so many that I talked to that we oftentimes refuse to look And just take a deep examination of the darkness that lives within us because we assume that either by ignoring it, it will go away, which let's just be honest, how many times have we done that, right? I mean, like, like, like even just on a, on a micro level, how many of you have ever just been like, yeah, I'm not interested in getting on the scale to see what that number is, right? Because if, because if I don't get on the scale, that number doesn't exist, right? And so at a micro level, we do that, but we do that in all areas of our lives. And I don't want to look at my own soul. I don't want to look at my own character. I don't want to look at my own attitude. I don't want to look at my own contribution to my marriage or my kids or that breakdown. And so we assume that it will go away, but it always becomes worse. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> the more you ignore it, the worse it becomes. So, so we either assume that by ignoring it, somehow it will go away, which it, by the way, never, ever does. Or... We are simply trying to figure out how to avoid the shame that, that is often attached to it. And I don't want to feel the shame that, that comes with recognizing my own brokenness or my own darkness or the places in my life that are in need of repentance. It's actually quite a modern idea that if something brings you shame, if you find yourself in a space of shame, the way to get out of that shame is to define whatever that thing that brings you shame as good. That's a very modern idea. That, 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 that if I'm feeling shame, the path out couldn't be to lay down the shame and receive forgiveness. That the path out is to make whatever is making me feel ashamed good. And we'll call it good. And therefore, I no longer have to deal with the shame of whatever it is that God's calling me into to repent from. <laughs> I was having a conversation about two years ago with someone. I had just gotten some blood work done, and the doctor said, you got to lower your cholesterol. you got to lower your cholesterol. And I was talking to them, and I just said, man, it's so hard. So it's, it's like a hard thing to lower your cholesterol. I don't want to get on meds, and you know, i got to get on a diet. i got on an exercise. Here's my plan. I have this whole thing. And they said, you know what? They, like paraphrasing here, but they basically said, you know what? I actually don't think you need any of that. I think what you need is some more body positivity. Now, Totally cool, right? I'm like, I get it. I'm like, yes, that totally could work. But he, I, I, love, I love their heart for me because they were basically saying, hey, come out from the shame of this conversation and just be more positive with your body in the middle of that. Now, I, 
I could totally have done that, right? And I, I look, I, don't, I have no problem with that, but, but here's the thing. I could enter into this whole like, hey, I need to be more body positive, all that stuff. That actually doesn't change the fact that there's cholesterol flowing through my blood, right? <laughs> that actually, I, I could sing kumbaya, I could do body sessions, I could do the thing where you stand in front of a mirror naked and you give yourself affirmations, could totally do all that stuff. That doesn't change the fact that what's happening internally in my body is lessening the years that I have with my children, right? And so I find myself in the space of like, yeah, this might be all it takes, but it probably wasn't. Because here's the thing, being body positive suddenly may remove the shame of what's taking place, but it doesn't actually remove the result of what's taking place internally. It doesn't actually change the physical results. It actually just leaves me more in the dark about what's needed and where I need to go and how I need to move forward. See, because... I could find myself there, but then I'll just say, I love my body. I'm so beautiful. I don't understand why I have heart palpitations all the time, right? I don't understand why I'm sweating profusely. I don't understand why I can't breathe when I walk up a flight of stairs, but I love my body, right? It doesn't actually change the reality of what's taking place. It simply removes the shame because I've now called this good. And that's oftentimes where we find ourselves in. Now, here's the thing. Jesus' invitation is this, that if something brings you shame, you don't need to classify it as good to get out of it. He actually says, lay down your shame and receive forgiveness. Yeah. That's the invitation. He says, look, look, let's just call a spade a spade. There have been some areas in your life that you may have screwed up. There have been some areas in your life where maybe you made poor choices. You don't need to wallow in shame. Part of repentance is actually not only turning from the direction you've been heading, but also being willing to lay down the shame that you've taken on voluntarily about whatever it is that you did or didn't do. And so Jesus says, hey, lay down the shame and pick up forgiveness. And then from that space, you can be free as you're repenting from whatever it is. P.S., we call that conviction. And it's actually, it actually is like God's spiritual messaging system to us saying, hey, there's something wrong with the engine. It's like a check engine light, right? Could you imagine if you're driving through your car, like driving your car, the check engine light comes on? Like, imagine this, right? <laughs> I know some of you do this. But the check engine light comes on, you're like, oh, that feels gross. That's going to cost a lot of money, right? Let me just put a piece of tape over that, right? <laughs> Better. But that's so oftentimes what we do in the middle of this. We ignore the spiritual messaging system that God's like, hey, there's something off. This is going to kill you. This is going to destroy your marriage. It's going to destroy your future. It's going to destroy your kids. It's going to destroy your own internal ability to connect with me and hear my voice. So turn and repent from this so that you can actually get back to the glorious life that you were meant to live. And here's the thing. The more that you ignore that messaging system, the greater you will find yourself in apathy because you will have no room to move. You will not know where to go, how fast to go, who to call. It all just goes numb on autopilot. So using the, the, the beautiful body positivity analogy is that laying down my shame and repenting actually frees me up to heal my body in a way that is not ignoring reality. In a way that actually allows me to know, hey, here's how I move forward. Here's the path out. Here's the path to wholeness and health toward the future that I long for. See, it's actually possible to fully address what's not working outside of the context of shame. And please don't send me emails about how I'm hating on body positivity, all right? <laughs> that wasn't the message today. But I love that 
God knows this about us and he remembers this about us. In Psalms 103, 14, he says, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust. Now that's not, when God says that, that's not like an accusation, like you little piece of dust, right? He, he just, he's like, hey, I remember. I remember when I created you out of the dust. That human beings came from the earth and I just, I, I know who you are. I think that's another reason why ash is placed on the head on, on Ash Wednesday is just to remind us who we are and how God sees us at our core. Because see, here's the thing. When Jackson or Colin, my sons, do something screwy and they're four and two, I don't look at them as fully grown adults who made that decision, right? When, when Jackson takes his cup of milk and spills it everywhere and then starts to dance in it, I don't, I don't think you stupid little, right? I don't, I don't think that. I, maybe I do, but, but I don't say that at least <laughs> because I pause and I remember, oh, you're four, right? <laughs> when Colin is running around begging me for candy all morning long because that's what he wants for breakfast, I remember you are but two, right? I think that's when, when, when we're in this space, God isn't like, ah, oh, I'm heaping on my fury and my wrath. He's like, look, I remember that you're butt dust, right? <laughs> We'll leave it there. <laughs> See, because God doesn't remember our brokenness and he does not hold it in the same way that we do. He holds it quite loosely. In fact, he, he holds it as so precious that he would send his own self to die on a cross to be released. Talk about wanting to release us from shame. He would give himself at the highest level so that we would never have to live in that space. So maybe we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. Maybe we should also remember that we are but dust and be striving to be perfect or pretending we could be will never actually move, move us to the places that we are called to be. Or just to remember that we are simply human in need of a God who can release us from the captivity of shame. And Ash Wednesday then begins this period of Lent, 40 days of fasting, Yay, right? <laughs> this is why when people talk about they're, they're giving up something for Lent, they're saying, hey, I'm going into this 40 days of seasons of fasting. And fasting is essentially temporarily removing anything that we find important to us, anything that we're, we're connected to or we find ourselves controlled by to refocus what's important to us during that season. And it represents this period of fasting that Jesus did for 40 years, 40 days. That would be a long fast, 40 days before he actually stepped into the ministry that God called him to. And this is the passage in Luke chapter four, starting in verse one. It says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit to the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. Understatement of the year, right? <laughs> The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, as it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil led him up to a high place and showed him, showed him an instant of all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that, they will not, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. By the way, the devil also knows the scriptures. 
So Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left him until a more opportune time. See, fasting is a, is, a, is a spiritual discipline. It's a practice that is incredibly powerful in our faith. And so it makes sense after we remember our need to repent, our need to return back to the glorious nature that Jesus invites us into, that we would then enter into a season of fasting to step into the next season that God has for us with this. And it does a number of things that in our own spiritual life, when we engage in this practice of fasting, something that we don't really talk about. I know, I know like intermittent fasting is cool now, but, but this was like a, a spiritual practice that, that was engaged in. See, I think there, there are three real things here that we see from Jesus' fast that are so applicable to where we are at, and that might actually do us some good if we were to step into this space as well. It allows us first to fully recognize where our source comes from. See, that, that, that this whole COVID season has been like a giant fast, hasn't it? In fact, I, I posted on Facebook on Wednesday, on Ash Wednesday, I said, what are you giving up for Lent? And, and several people said, I'm not giving up anything because I feel like I've just given up everything for a year. So I really don't feel like I need to deprive myself of anything else. But this COVID season has been kind of like a forced fast, there's, there's not a lot of places to go. The things that we held on to, whether it was entertainment or whether it was a career or whether it was community gathering with one another, whatever it may be, there were things that were removed to us that would normally provide us some type of sustenance, some type of, some type of energy, some type of movement forward. And so, so many of us in this fast, this season, have rediscovered what's important to us. In fact, that's the thing that I hear so often when people get off complaining about this season and start looking at the gift that it might have been for us. I oftentimes hear, man, I, I learned so much about what matters most, whether that was re-engaging with my family or whether that was reconnecting to a dream that I have or giving myself fully or, 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 or hey, ha having some downtime so that I can actually listen to what's going on inside of me and, and rework some of those things. See, fasting is a temporary removal of something that sustains us or that we have become reliant upon to return to what actually matters, what actually sustains us. It reminds us that God is the source, that his voice speaking over us is what sustains us, stronger than anything else. It's why, why, actually one of the reasons why the early church members prayed over their food. I know, I know we still have a, ha some of us have a, still have a habit of doing that where we pray for our food. It's actually become like quite a very silly tradition because oftentimes we're sitting down with like a hamburger and french fries and we're saying, dear God, bless this to the nourishment of my body, right? Which doesn't make any sense at all. Because we're not like, dear God, please chemically remake this so that I don't have high cholesterol, right? <laughs> so, so that's not actually what we're saying. See, I, I think one of, the, one of the powerful things about pausing before we take in food in our mouths to pray is recognizing that it's not actually the food that sustains us. It's the God who speaks life into the food over us that sustains us. It's the God that has actually designed an ecosystem that provides food for us. And it is his voice speaking over that ecosystem that allows us to be sustained when we normally wouldn't be. It's, it's not actually blessing the food. There's nothing magically that happens when you, when you pray over your meal. It's actually a reorienting of our minds to remind us that this thing that I'm putting in my mouth is not what keeps me alive. It's the voice of God that keeps me alive that even has created this ability to take in food. 
And so that prayer is a reorienting of my own mind, of my own thought, of my own perspective in that moment about food. See, the thing is you can actually be physically well-fed and spiritually dead and never actually recognize it because you just keep feeding yourself. And it may not just be with food. It could be with your phone. It could be with television. It could be with music. It could be with your career. It could be with your bank account. It could be the infatuation with the dream that's in front of you, whatever it may be. But this is one of the gifts of fasting is it reminds us what actually sustains us, what moves us forward. And I don't like to talk a lot about the devil because I don't like giving him a lot of airplay, right? And if you've been around here, I'm not like a big, like, the enemy is here. But this is a powerful moment where God has a direct interaction with this force of darkness that so many uh, call Satan or the devil. And But one of the ways that I've noticed is that the way that the enemy will destroy us is to fill us with anything but the voice of God speaking into us. That he will lead us to assume that the money, the relationship, the fame, the prestige, the likes, the future, fill in the blank, will actually sustain us. Because all he has to do is convince us that that's actually the thing that's keeping us alive, not the voice of God, not him speaking over us and removing us from the very thing that will bring us back to life. So I think that's the first thing that, that fasting does is it reorients us back to, our, to what sustains us, what's life-giving, what's filling us with, with the fuel to move us forward. But the second thing that I think it does, which is similar to the first but distinct, is that it actually re- causes us to reorient our lives towards what actually matters. It actually causes us to pause and to shift everything, our attention, our focus, our demands, our schedules towards what actually matters. See, because Jesus is offered all of the splendors of the kingdoms of the world, if all he would do is bow down to the enemy. Now, now you may think that's silly, but I guarantee you, if someone came to you today and said, hey, you get all the money, you get all the fame, you get everything, all you have to do is do like a little like ritual and, and worship Satan. <laughs> that would be a very hard choice, right? <laughs> to be like, hey, th- there's a billion dollars in your bank account tomorrow. Do whatever you need to do. That's not like a, oh, cool. I know, I know a lot of us in our lofty religious ideas would think we'd instantly be like, no, right? <laughs> but let's just be real. That, that would be a hard decision to make in the middle of this. But, but, what the enemy is essentially saying to Jesus, if you would just reorient your life towards honoring me, I will give you everything that you wanted. And that may seem really far off, but how often are we presented with that exact same decision every single day? If you would reorient your life towards this other thing that matters, you'll have what you want. If you would just give up this this way of living that's going to move you towards life, towards this other path, I promise you it will give you the life that you were longing for. And we are presented with this day after day after day. And here's the thing is that the human spirit was made to worship something. It will always, always, always worship something. It will always be oriented towards giving its time, its energy, its resources to something in the world. We were made to have our attention captured to be captivated by something. And we are on def- when we are on default, we move towards worshiping all kinds of things. We, we, we move towards worshiping money or power or sex or being known or protection. And we rarely choose to consciously fixate on these things. I've never met a human being when I ask like, what's most important to you? They're like sex, right? 
Or what's most important to you? Making a ton of money. Now, I've actually, I think I may have had that answer like once in the, the many times I ask people what matters most to you. And you're like, no human being ever consciously redirects their energy, their time, all of their, all of their attention towards any of these things. But we drift there naturally, don't we? When we're on autopilot, we drift to all kinds of things. I mean, how many of we drift towards the worship of self-pity? We just go there so easily. Woe is me, how awful is my life? And then we start worshiping that tune. But we, we, we drift into this so easy. Now, here's the thing. Fasting does not cause us to worship. It interrupts the cycle of worship that we're already in. That's what it does. Fasting doesn't like suddenly give you, oh, now I have time because I'm not eating lunch to worship God. <laughs> what it does is it interrupts the cycle of worship that you're in and it causes you to consider what else might be available that I could worship that's bigger than this, than money, than the, than the career, than the fame, than the prestige, than the fortune, whatever it may be. See, even just fasting food messes with where our attention goes and where our energy is oriented towards. On, on Monday... Uh, we just, I decided to do a fast and, and was fasting from food for the morning and up until evening. And I'm telling you, I cannot tell you how many times I just would like go to grab for the snack. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Or I even found myself meeting with a friend. And I'm like, hey, let's go get coffee. Got coffee. And then I grabbed the coffee and it's like filled with all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, does, wait, hold on. I didn't even think about that. Does this count? Of course, in my mind, I'm like, coffee doesn't count for fasting, right? But... <laughs> But it's amazing how automatic our lives get, how automatic our lives become where we aren't even considering where am I giving my attention to? Where am I placing my energy? Where does my focus and where does my life and where does my affections move towards? And what fasting does is it puts a cog in it, it like puts a wrench in the wheel and pauses everything and says, hey, stop. Be conscious of where your energy, your attention, your focus, your worship is going to. It's getting off the hamster wheel of automatic worship and actually choosing with intention to reorientate and fixate our, our energy on what matters most back to the God who created us. Because here's the thing, whatever you worship will determine the limits of your life. It will. Whatever you orient your energy, whatever you fixate your eyes on will determine what's possible within your life. This is actually one of the many reasons why God calls us, begs us, woos us, commands us to worship him. Not because he is in need of another person worshiping him, but because he loves us enough to say that if you would worship me, I will, I, you, your life will be set free because this is what your soul is looking for. Everything else is going to put limits, caps on what's possible in your life. If you would reorient your worship back to me, you will find yourself without limits. Yes. See, and, the, and then the enemy offers Jesus all the authority of this earth. See, here's the crazy thing, is that the devil actually had that within his grasp to give him at that moment. A lot of times theologians like twist this and say, well, you know, the devil didn't even have that to give. No, he absolutely did. He could have said, no, it's all yours. Great, I'll back up. You get all of it. But now you're enslaved to me. Now I actually get to cap what's possible in your life. See, the crazy thing is that what Jesus recognized was that there was a higher future coming, coming for him. That there was, a, there was a greater elevation of what's possible coming if you would just be willing to stick in it. And later on, 
after Jesus was sacrificed and came back to life, he was then able to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, he could have settled for authority on earth and said, hey, this is what I got. But through his fasting, through his willing to sacrifice, through his willing to hang in there, he was able to say, ha, not only do I have authority on earth, but I also have authority in heaven. And now I give this to you. And this is the power of reorienting your life on what matters, to reorienting your attention, to fixing your eyes on the things that are actually worth worshiping. And finally, the last thing that I see from Jesus is that it actually allows us to determine what is trustworthy and true and to put all of our life into that thing. See, there is something about removing our dependency on something like food or television or coffee or whatever it may be for a season of time in fasting to removing our dependency on that. It's in that that we realized how fragile our ecosystem actually is. Like, and how, how fragile the things that we have put our trust in are. How many of you ever done a fast and like by lunch, you're like, this was a bad idea, right? <laughs> like, why, why was I doing this? It took like seven hours to recognize that, that you're, you're, you're like, hey, this is the, oh, wow, I didn't realize I was this fragile. I didn't realize I, I didn't realize I was one meal away from becoming crazy, right? <laughs> and we just recognize how, how fragile our ecosystem is. And part of being in the the rat race of this life and all the anxiety that seems to be elevated so much around us, like it seems like it's just so strong. Everyone I talk to these days is anxious. And that's not an indictment. That's just an observation that that I'm noticing all around us. And being in the rat race of life is so anxious that it comes with it. And if I'm no longer receiving life to my soul, and my worship and my attention is on something that is actually going to limit my freedom, of course I'm going to have trouble trusting what's in front of me. Of course, I'm not going to actually know what is actually trustworthy and true that I should give my time, my energy, my whole life to. Because here's the thing, given our own ways, we usually put our trust and energy in things that are not trustworthy. We just naturally kind of drift into those spaces whether, like I said, it's the paycheck or whether it's the, the likes on Instagram or whether it's the clout or whether it's the future that we are so driven by. And I'm always questioning. I'm always second guessing. I'm always wondering, is this the thing? Is it going to sustain? Is it going to be there? Am I going to be able to rely on this tomorrow? What happens if it all goes away? Now, see, the enemy tempts Jesus in this fast by saying, throw yourself off of this building and see if God is who he says he is. Hey, test and see if God is who he says he is. See, but when I have recognized that Jesus is my source and my life's energy and affections are to be captured by him, I don't actually have to live in constant insecurity about who he is. I'm already in that connection with him. I don't actually have to test. I don't have to throw myself off a building to see if God will save me in the middle of that because I have tasted and I have seen and there is this new level of trust and confidence that is now available in spirit, in God, in who he is in front of us. And the ultimate result of this fast that Jesus stepped into was two things. One, the enemy left because there wasn't any room to take him down. See, I, I, look, I want you, some of you to pause and just to, to notice some of you have been in it. Like, I know some of you are just in it. 
And I'm wondering if, the, if like what feels like a constant berating of your life, like the constant pounding by the waves at your life, isn't the enemy actually saying, hey, I'm trying to take you down. And, and by fasting, by, by re-recognizing your source, by reorienting your energies towards what matters, fo- focusing on him, and then allowing that trust to re-enter your life, I wonder if the enemy might then look at your life and say, it isn't worth it, I'll come back at a more opportune time. That's what the scriptures say. In fact, the enemy didn't say, I'm not coming back. He just said, I'll find a more opportune time, which by the way was the cross, which he actually couldn't win then either. But the other thing is that when you continue on, this actually launched Jesus into this season of the miraculous. Before this, Jesus hadn't done much of note, but after this moment, he's out there like, all right, I'm ready to go. Let's heal some people. You need some sight? Here you go. You need, to be, you need to be healed of leprosy? Here you go. You need to be, have all of that brokenness and darkness cast out of you? Here you go. Because it was the season of entering into fasting that released him, it expanded what's possible in his life because he took the lid off. He took the lid off what's possible here in this moment. And here's the second countercultural idea that Jesus invites us into at Lent. The first one is that you can totally engage your brokenness outside of the context of shame. Here's the second thing that I think is so critical for our culture today, that being, just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's bad for you. Yes. I, I think that so often in our culture today that when things get uncomfortable, we automatically like, that's bad. I got to get that out of my life. And here's the thing that I've noticed is that it actually doesn't give us a very good gauge about what is actually abusive or toxic. So anything that's like slightly uncomfortable, that's toxic. Yeah. Anything that's slightly uncomfortable, that's abusive. Now, yeah. let, me hear, let me say this before I get tweets and emails. I'm not saying to stay in toxic and abusive situations. I'm just saying that when everything uncomfortable becomes bad, it's hard to actually calibrate yeah. what is toxic and what yeah. is abusive. Yeah. And so we find ourselves wanting to run. See, we live in a world where if it doesn't feel good, we're out. If it doesn't do it for me, I'm out. Yeah. And often, the one thing that is needed to disrupt the system that we find ourselves in is going to be painful. Yes. It's going to be uncomfortable. We're not going to like it. No one I've ever met is like, yes, sign me up for 40 days of fasting, right? Because it's just not enjoyable in the middle of it, but it is needed for the future that we long for to reorient our lives. So if you're going to base your life's practices and your life's purpose on what feels good, you will more often than not be left hurting. Because let me tell you, it feels good for my kids to eat ice cream every meal, right? It feels good to do all kinds of things. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually going to move you forward. But the opposite is true, that just because it's uncomfortable does not mean that it is bad for you. See, if you ask what temporary suffering is needed to move my life forward and the lives of others forward. And you're in that conversation. Okay, what what temporary suffering do I need to go through now to have this future that's coming for me? You You will find yourself being left powerful because that's what Jesus was left with, power. He's no longer second guessing. He's not like, where does my strength come from? There's none of that. He was like, I am clear about my mission and what I'm up to and the power that's available to me. 
And not only did he get all of the power on earth, but he got all of the power of heaven in that moment. So as we continue on in this season of Lent, you may actually consider what it would look like to give something up, to release something from your life. Not for like a religious performance. Not like, hey, I'm doing this because this is what I'm supposed to do. But you might actually consider, hey, what is the thing that I can remove from my life for a season to interrupt the cycle of worship, to interrupt the cycle of connecting to other sources, to interrupt the cycle of anxiety, to step into this new future that's available to me, to be brought back to life in the middle of that. And as we, as we enter this Lent season, moving towards Easter quickly, I'm gonna ask you, are you courageous enough to face your own brokenness? Are you courageous enough to just take a deep dive inside? Because I, I know I talk to so many people and even in my own life, there's times where it's like, I don't, I don't wanna go down that well because I don't know how deep it is. But what Lent reminds us is, is Jesus saying, it's okay because you can lay down the shame and pick up forgiveness and healing and restoration. That's what I came for. But the second thing is, are you willing to go through the temporary suffering necessary to be redeemed, to be healed, to be restored, to have the future that God has for you? To be willing to, to for a moment, say, I know this is gonna be uncomfortable. I know this isn't gonna be fun. I know this isn't gonna be enjoyable, but this is what's needed, not only for me, but for my community. See, I think that's the other part of this that, that we oftentimes miss. Because we're so often focused on, hey, what can I do? What can I get? How can I move my life forward? What's the blessing that God can give on me? See, Jesus didn't fast so that he could be healed. He fasted so that he could heal the world. And if that's the case, then how much more should we then be willing to enter into the suffering the sake of our brothers and sisters around us who are in need of a God who can save their own brokenness, to redeem them out of shame, and to invite them into wholeness. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you, you're just not interested in any shame conversation, God. That you're like you're you're just not interested in having that discussion that doesn't live within you. And so we even release our own images of a God who feels the need to heap shame on people, God. God, today I, I ask for those who are here and for those who are listening who look at their own darkness, who look at their own brokenness, and feel overwhelmed, God? Or do they feel ashamed, God? Spirit, I ask that you would just come right now and that you would move over them. I just have a sense that there are some of, some of you here or online that, that there have been parts of your life where you've just closed the door and locked it because you, you thought it's too overwhelming to even step into that room of things that you've done in the past, of things that have been done to you. For some of, it, for some of you, it's things you didn't do that you 
that you regret, things you didn't say, things you didn't engage, and you feel like you're still suffering the consequences of that. I'm going to pray for you specifically right now and just ask, Holy Spirit, would you give these women and men courage to open those doors knowing that you're holding on to them as they do, God. And that there is no shame, there is no condemnation, but there is just healing on the other side. God, release us into your freedom today. And this morning, if you're, if you're here or if you're online and you've never connected to Jesus, this cannot be, this is not like a self-help program. This is just you connecting to the creator of your soul and him releasing you. That's all this is. So if that's you here today and you're like, hey, I want to connect to Jesus maybe for the first time or for the first time in a long time and lay down the shame, start the journey towards healing. If you're online, you can just press that button that says today I'm making a decision to follow Jesus or or you can just type in the comments, Jesus will know who you are. And I just want to pr pray with you. You can pray this prayer. It's not magic words. It's just you releasing your life over to Jesus. Just say, dear, dear Jesus, I give you my life. I know that I'm broken. And I know that that doesn't need to hold me back. And so I courageously step into connection with you. I make you Lord, I give you everything. I know that you died and you came back to life for me so that I might fully live. And I thank you for your sacrifice for me. And so today I choose to live free of shame and free of guilt and I repent to the life that you've called me to live. I thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Humanity Church Podcast. We hope that this was a meaningful experience and we look forward to connecting again next week for another conversation around what it looks like to live by faith, to be known by love, and to be a voice of hope. Again, for more information about Humanity Church, you can visit us online at humanitychurch.com. And if you want to support the ongoing work here at Humanity Church, including this podcast, you can give online in about 10 seconds by texting the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977. Thanks and have an amazing week.